Welcome back to the Original Gangsters Podcast. I'm your host, Scott Bernstein. Across from me is my partner in crime, my co-conspirator, the doctor, Jimmy Bucciolato. Hi, everyone. Hey, now. Today, we are going to be discussing an upcoming book that's going to be released uh, in the days before Christmas called The Defense Lawyer. Uh, It is the story of Barry Slotnick, one of the more storied, legendary criminal defense attorneys in American history, definitely over the last half century, connected to Joe Colombo, John Gotti, JFK, <laughs> just a, uh, a cavalcade of big names and uh, big cases and big wins. This was, you know, when, when you're talking about criminal defense in the city of New York, this guy was one of the juggernauts, you know, it was, you know, Michael Jordan, Larry Bird, Magic Johnson, you know, if you're talking about basketball hall of famers and you're going to try to uh, analogize it to uh, the world of criminal defense, you know, Barry Slotnick is up there with, uh, with all the true greats. Uh, and the book is, is also written by a true great James Patterson, who is a, uh, a superstar in his own right in the world of uh, literature. And we're very honored to have on Barry's son, uh, Stuart Slotnick, who is also a, a very well-known and successful criminal defense attorney in the state and city of New York. And uh, we're, we're honored to have him on to discuss the book. Uh, thanks, Stuart, for joining us. Thanks for having me. Excited to talk about the book. So, well, first, let's talk about how uh, your dad uh, got hooked up with James Patterson. I mean, um, people don't necessarily uh, think... Uh, nonfiction when they think James Patterson, he's one of the the titans of uh, the world of fiction over the last uh, handful of decades. You know, he's uh, sold millions and millions of books. How did he end up uh, transitioning into writing some nonfiction about your father? That's a great question. It's a great story. First of all, I want to say that James Patterson is probably the most successful, most prolific writer of all time. He's incredible. And not only is he incredible at his trade, but he is a mensch. He's a really good guy, and he's honest, and he does what he says he's going to do. With that being said, the question, how did we come to have a book with James Patterson? This goes back a couple of years. It goes back even further. Every year, someone would call me or would call my father and say, Barry, your book has to be written. And my father would say, I'm listening. And they, and people would say, whoever it was, it would be an agent or someone who wanted to write it themselves. And they'd say, your story is a New York City story. The cases were legendary and we have to get it done. And once a year, someone would come forward and say, I want to be the person to do, to do it. And it just wouldn't get done for one reason or another. And a couple of years ago, someone came forward and said, I want to write the book. He had a real vision for the book. He was very, very enthusiastic about it. And he reached out to James Patterson. And he said, what do you think about this idea? So that's how it started, just with a simple phone call. And James Patterson loved the idea, and he did a great job on the book. Let's talk about some of those big uh case studies that you're looking at in the book, because I think when people think of your father, I mean, we're a a podcast and we focus on true crime, but specifically gangsters, mobsters, racketeers. 
So obviously your 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 father's uh, career is an important part of that, you know, telling these kinds of stories. And right away, I think people think of him defending some of the most notorious gangsters out of New York City, especially in the Italian mafia. And one that comes to mind is Joe Colombo. And I, I believe that's going to be one of the core stories in this new book. Um, can you can you tell us about your, your memories of your dad handling, you know, big cases like or big clients and, like and Joe Colombo? Just, just let me just jump in and let, let the audience know. You know, Barry Slotnick was doing a lot of this uh, transformational legal work at a very young age. Like, he was only in his late 20s, 30s. Am I right, uh, Stuart? So... It's true that my father growing up skipped two grades. He then did two grades in one year. So he essentially skipped two to three grades. So by the time he graduated from law school, he was the youngest lawyer around. So he had to grow a mustache because he felt like he looked too young because he was too young to be a lawyer, but he, you know, it is what it is. So, that's how he started off in the early days. And he hustled like a young lawyer and he ultimately got Joe Colombo as the client. Now he loved Joe Colombo. He adored Joe Colombo. He thought that Joe Colombo was really a, an, a guy that if he said he was going to do something, he would do it. And he really was a huge break for my father in representing him. There's, a story that Joe Colombo really trusted my father because there was an old prosecutorial gambit where the prosecutors would subpoena alleged mafioso to come to the grand jury to then testify. And then they would ask them questions. How'd you get here today? And then the individual would say, I'm not answering that question. Fifth Amendment. And then they would and then they'd say, you have to answer the question. And they say, I'm not answering the question. And they seek to hold them in contempt. And then they throw them in jail for short periods of time. And that was the game. And then my father said, we're not going to play that game. This, what we're going to do instead is when they ask you questions, you're going to answer it. Because when you answer questions in the grand jury in New York, you get immunity for it. So let me give you an example. If you're in the grand jury and a prosecutor asks you, did you shoot John Smith and kill him? And if you say yes, you have just been granted immunity for that crime. There are very few things that a prosecutor can do to really mess up a case. And granting someone immunity by having them testify about something in the grand jury is one of the ways. So what my father did, he said, you're going to go in and you're going to answer the questions. So they start off, how'd you get here today? And he said, I drove. And then the prosecutor was confused because that's never the way it went. This wasn't the game. And so my father said, yes, of course he's answering questions. Keep asking him questions. Why don't you ask him about any crimes you think he may commit, may have committed? And the prosecutor said, you can go home. <laughs> and that's how my father earned Joe Colombo's trust, because everyone in the circle said, don't do it, Joe, don't do it. And he said, I'm going with Barry. And he tried that and it worked. 
And that ended that for the future. And it just it stopped happening because they, they blew up the game. Didn't he argue this case in front of the Supreme Court? So he had it. He had um, a Joe Colombo case go up to the Supreme Court, and it was related to to this action because you know when you wouldn't answer questions, then you be you could be held in contempt, and then there was a question of whether something was criminal contempt or civil contempt, and it went up to the Supreme Court of the United States twice, and he won twice. Most lawyers, you, you don't even realize this. Most lawyers never even see the Supreme Court of the United States, much less practice in it. So that, at a very young age, was really an astounding accomplishment. So let's just give a little context to the listeners that might not know exactly who Joel Colombo is. They know that he was a godfather in New York. Uh, he was someone whose whose name is still attached to a crime family in New York. Uh but Joe Colombo was also a politician to a degree, uh, someone that, you know, uh, kind of a social influencer before the term uh, came into popularity and was instrumental in a lot of uh, ways that the media would cover or help shape uh, a lot of the ways the media or, or uh, the, the, the world of film and television uh, would, would uh, reference organized crime. Uh, he was someone that, uh, before he was uh, assassinated in, in the early 70s, um, was going on a lot of talk shows, campaigning uh, against uh, Italian defamation and uh, stereotyping and whatnot. How, how much did your father play a role in, in that aspect of, of Joe Colombo's life being a high profile figure outside of just being a crime boss. My father was very instrumental because Joe Colombo had set up the Italian American civil liberties union. He did not like the way Italians were treated on TV and in the press. And he didn't like the way they were really denigrated. And so he fought against that and he was a civil libertarian and he viewed himself like that. And my father was the general counsel of the Italian American Civil Liberties Union. In fact, Joe Colombo, you know, much the consternation of other alleged mafioso, um, you know, he brought a lot of spotlight to this issue and some people didn't like that. Some people said that had to do with why he was ultimately shot. And when he was shot at an Italian-American Civil Liberties Union rally in Columbus Circle in Manhattan, my father was standing right next to him. Oh, wow. He was six inches from him when Joe was shot. And there was a policeman there that had his billy club, and he hit my father on the back to force him to the ground because they didn't know where the shots were coming from. And my father said he saw Joe on the ground and they took him to the hospital. And my father went there and the surgeon said he's not going to live through the night. And my father said, do whatever you have to do to make sure that statement is false. And Joe lived for many years thereafter. I lived for about six or seven years. Yeah, for a short time. 
but he was I think disabled. he was shot in 72, and then eventually they disconnected him from uh, all the machines in, like, 78, I think. Yeah. He was pretty much incapacitated as, as a result of the uh, assassination attempt and the shooting. What kind of um, impact did that have on, on like, your father's psyche? Psy- yeah, his psyche. Cause, you know, this is his vocation. This is his career. But um, in this case, he's he's literally in the line of fire. It's one thing to represent clients and go into the courtroom and do battle, so to speak, metaphorically. But in this case, he's literally in the line of fire. Um, and to see his friend, and not, it was not only his client, but it sounds like he had become a confidant and a friend, to see him gunned down like that, I mean, that's really an extraordinary circumstance. Did your, did you, I mean, what, what was your dad's kind of, how did he handle that in terms of psychologically and socially? You know, that's a really good question, and I don't know the answer to that. I'm going to speak to my father. I'm going to ask him the answer to that question. But I will tell you that at the time that this happened, my father was already, uh, even though he was very young, he was a known quantity. He was a lawyer about town. He had a lot of clients. Um, he was, even at that young age, somewhat sought after. But I think that, you know, like I said, when they went to the hospital, he went into, into action mode immediately. And he did what he needed to do because he wanted to put pressure on the doctors not to give up keep trying. So I, I think he was, I think, I think he was personally devastated to see that this happened to Joe because he, he really, he really liked Joe, unlike many others whose names I won't mention. Um, but yeah, I think it was, it was a, a blow. I just want to throw in one comment. I want to dive into one more aspect of Joe Colombo and then go forward. But before I do that, I just want to, I, you know, my, I, I'm considered a, a mafia expert. I, I would never say that I'm a, a, a New York City mafia expert. I, I think I know more than most, but I would defer to some of the people that have studied the, the five families a little bit more than I have. But, you know, with my, you know, cursory knowledge of what the climate was at the time of the, the Joe Colombo shooting or assassination, I, I don't think it had anything to do with all of the uh, television appearances and uh, all that stuff. I I think that was used by a renegade uh, group within, within the crime family as kind of like a cover. Uh, But, you know, we know who shot Joe Colombo. Uh, He was then murdered seconds later. We know who that, we know who that person was connected to, uh, who was a, a guy named, uh, crazy Joe Gallo. And right. I think that he just got unfortunately caught up in a lot of volatile political machinations within his own crime family that had been going on for a decade uh, back to Joe Perfacci. Um, and unfortunately was, was, you know, on the short end of the stick when it came to those, uh, those political machinations in the underworld. Don't, don't you think, uh, Overtures were made, or maybe that's not the right way to put it, but that Joe Gallo had reason to believe that the five families would be okay with. Yeah, I'm, <laughs> okay I'm, I'm not doubting. Happened. I'm not doubting that, but I don't. You know I mean? don't think this was like. Yeah, there are different theories, right? There, there are different theories. There are some some theories that this was uh, a bid to try and change his political position and in the, in the structure. Uh, you know, sort of like John Gotti did. 
with Paul Castellano, or uh, they're also theories, and they're all theories. No, I, I can't give you the answer. We're all sort of just thinking about it. There's also the theory that he went to some other important people and other families and said, this is going to happen, and no one said no. <laughs> right. But I don't know what the truth is. It lives in the uh, the mafia mystique of that era, and uh, it's uh, it's definitely uh, it, it, there's an indelible mark in in the in the in the history of New York City, the history of the mafia, uh, you know, just the, the, just the history of pop culture and uh, and that event uh, surrounding Joe Colombo. But there's w- one more thing before we move on from Colombo. Uh, let's talk a little bit about how him and your father influenced the script of the movie The Godfather. Because if you watch the first Godfather movie, which everyone hails as maybe not just the the greatest, you know, crime uh, saga mob movie of all time, it's hailed as possibly the greatest movie of all time. Yeah, that's that's true, by the way. (laughs) It is. It it is the greatest movie of all time. I agree. I tell my students, I teach crime and film, and I, I, I tease them, and I say, this is... This is like physics, okay? Like there's no – this isn't interpretation. This is this is just a matter of fact, scientific truth. The Godfather is the greatest film of all time. But in that movie, if you're paying close attention, they never utter the word mafia or mob. It's always the family. Yeah. Uh, and from what I've read, and I'm interested to, to for Stuart to give us the, the insight from his side of this or him and his father's side of this, was that there was some, you know uh, – some some hard line negotiating behind the scenes with uh, Albert Ruddy, who was one of the producers, and Bob Evans, uh, who was one of the studio heads that were making the film, to eliminate some of those uh, terms from from the movie. Well, this is a story I've heard my whole life, and it's one of my favorite stories uh, because it it almost this is a story about the making of the movie, and this story should have been in a movie because what happened was that Joe Colombo heard that this movie was going to be made, and he, as we all know, did not like derogatory terms being used about Italians. And he said the message was sent, I, the script needs to be changed. And the answer was, take a hike. And so then when they tried to film, apparently... The lights were broken, and on the next day, apparently, uh, maybe some trucks were missing, and then on the next day, maybe someone got beat up, and then the studio said, we'll take a meeting. (laughs) And so, as the story goes, my father was given the script, and he said, take out what would be offensive to Joe, and we'll look at it. And they did, and they were accepted, all but one change. There was... There was one comment that my father took out, and it, it was a derogatory term about a Jewish lawyer, a Jewish congressman, and I don't remember exactly what it was, but they said, that's not the deal, that's going back in. Yeah, I think, uh, if we're going to geek out here, I think, um, it wasn't there, there was a scene where Vito Corleone says, give that to some Jew congressman in New York or something. Remember when he says um, something about an immigration, maybe the uh, the, the baker... Or his, his son-in-law and he has some immigration problems or something like that, and he says, but, right, "Give it to some Jew lawyer." From the from the first, it's in the first couple minutes yeah, of, the, yeah. of the movie, right? I, that might when be the, the scene the they're baker, talking about. No, 
Yeah, it's, ba- it's, it's when the people. That's are, it. It's when people are. Co- it's it. when people are coming to ask Vito. Yeah, on the wedding for, for favors on right. his on his daughter's wedding night. Right or wedding day. So that's interesting that they they actually right. tried. They wanted that out too, but they they pushed back and that stayed in there. That's really interesting. Well, I don't think they wanted it out. I think my father gave it a shot because I, I think he got swept in and like let's protect everybody, and so he took that out. And that went back in. He said, this was not part of the deal. You know, it's interesting. Just, I know you want to move on, but just about Joe Colombo. My father, at the same time, represented a rabbi named Mayor Kahana. And he was an advocate for Jews, and particularly for Russian Jews who were being victimized in the Soviet Union. And um, my father was to meet Joe Colombo. And he said, I have to cancel on you, Joe, because Rabbi Kahana got arrested um, uh, fighting for his cause. I mean, there were a lot of things that he did that was that caused him to be arrested. And my father said he does. He's not going to be able to make bail. And I got to get over to the courthouse right now. And then when my father got to the courthouse, Joe Colombo was there with his bail bondsman. And he posted the bail for Rabbi Kahana. Wow. That is a great story. (laughs) And he did that because he said, I fight for my people and he's fighting for his people and he's a man of God. And I respect that. And so he posted bail for Rabbi Kahana and then they developed a friendship. So that's an amazing story that I think not a lot of people know. Yeah, it's interesting that he's examples of uh, like a guy who's uh, high-ranking allegedly. Right? <laughs> I think I think I don't think we get, we have to say allegedly, but high-ranking organized crime figure. But he's he's not just running with the usual street guys at like gambling parlors and stuff. Like he's uh, Joe Colombo was like out there in society, like high society. He right? was going on television. Yeah, yeah, right. It, it, like interacting with civil See, like, right. civic Mi- leaders Mickey, and things like Mickey that. Mickey Cohen had been going on television around that same time oh, yeah, period. LA, yeah. But Mickey Cohen at that point was 20 yeah. years removed from right. being a shot caller. Right. Joe Colombo was a yeah, yeah. godfather that was going on the Mike Douglas show. <laughs> right, right. And hobnobbing with civic Doing leaders. Doing talk shows. Yeah. yeah. And, and I mean, my understanding is that Carlo Gambino particularly did not like that, but that doesn't mean he pushed a button to have him. But he, but I think it's pretty certain he did not like there that. There was a lot of dysfunction in the Colombo crime family, oh, yeah. the Profaci crime family, which turned into the Colombo crime family. Yeah. A- and that dysfunction started in the early 1960s yeah. and, frankly, has not— ceased <laughs> right there's just there's been dysfunction in that family yeah uh, for the last 50 years yeah that ripple effect yeah. throughout the decades so yeah we've had uh, michael francis on our show before if listeners uh, haven't heard that yet go back and check that out in our archives but he was there that afternoon too that when he talked about that a little bit with us the yeah. day that joe colombo was was shot but we we talked to him about that mm-hmm. some of that dysfunction that was did going your father on. ever uh, do any work for sonny francis um you know i can't really say well, we'll go. We'll segue from one from one uh, uh, gangster legend to another. We know for sure your da- your dad got an acquittal for John Gotti, which uh, you know is quite a feather in your cap when you're uh, defending public enemy number one uh, for the FBI at that time. Just talk a little bit about uh, your father's representation of uh, the Teflon Don, the Dapper Don, the face of uh, you know the face of organized crime in the last quarter. Uh, uh, you know, last quarter century of the 20th century. 
So that was obviously one of the biggest cases at the time. The the main defendant was Neil Delacroce, and who my father represented. But he had cancer, and he died before the case went to trial. And so my father's office was not only representing Delacroce, but it was also representing John Gotti, who, at the time the indictment was brought, was not really anybody... Right. No one knew who his this name. was before. This was no this one was, knew I, who he was. This was like eighty three, eighty four when this indictment came down. Gotti didn't become boss until uh, actually. It's tomorrow's the anniversary of uh, of of the Castellano assassination. Right. Uh, will be thirty right. thirty six years on December sixteenth. Um, but uh, yeah, so it was uh, Gotti became Godfather in uh, December of of eighty five, and this indictment came down a year or two before. So, yeah, and so what happened was that Gotti did not want to make a move while Aniello Della Croce was still alive because he was under his wing and that was not approved. Yep. And so once Della Croce died, John Gotti made his move. And then he became elevated yes. on the chart, on the indictment, everything. Now all of a sudden he was the big guy. Della Croce uh, died or passed away in October. I believe late October of '85, uh, Paul Castellano, uh, to his own detriment, decided to skip uh, De La Croce's uh, funeral and ma- uh, and uh, wake. Uh, and I think that, combined with uh, De La Croce no longer living, uh, that was the final straw. Not that it, you know, if he would have showed up, it probably wouldn't have made much of a difference. Yeah, because they were already that, that was. Yeah, bur- but when brewing. he when he decided to 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 just ditch his own underboss's uh, funeral, that was like uh, yeah, that was blasphemy. To, do, do you to, remember what your your father's like impression of uh, Mr. Neal, as they call him on the streets? Uh, what kind of man he was? Like, uh, did he have a similar chemistry with him as he did with Joe Colombo? So let let me say this because I think this is important. Um. These mafia figures and these gangster figures are really sensationalized and they're given a little bit of a gleam that people look at them and there are so many movies about them. And my father was not part of that life. That was his job. He represented them. And my father believed that everyone deserved a good defense. And most importantly, the prosecutors can't just charge you with something and expect that they'll be convicted. They had to work for their conviction. They had to prove the case beyond a reasonable doubt. So there were some of these guys that my father liked personally on a one-by-one level, even though these were guys that we know had done very bad things. But you could like somebody on a personal level and it, on a professional level, but he didn't become part of, of them. There are some lawyers over the years that crossed over the line, that they didn't see the boundaries, and then they were too enamored by their clients. That was not my father. And although my father really liked Joe Colombo personally, and he liked Daniello Della Croce personally, he, he always saw the line. That's something he always talked to me. He always said, be careful with your clients. You see the line. And there were things that you would do and you wouldn't do. 
And he was always very cognizant of that. And, you know, I'm not going to name any names, but you know that there are lawyers that have gotten in trouble for getting too involved in the day-to-day activities of their clients. Yeah. I mean, just in, I mean, in Detroit, <laughs> I'm going to make this all connect. Watch Bernie uh, weave his, his magic wand here. <laughs> so, uh, Bruce Cutler was the uh, – That's John, what I was thinking. Well, no, I'm not, I'm not going <laughs> to cast any dispersions on Bruce Cutler. Yeah. Bruce Cutler was John Gotti's you know, main attorney uh, after uh, Barry Slotnick got him acquitted uh, for the rest of his uh, – most of his time on uh, the top of the mountain of uh, the Gambino crime families. Bruce Cutler, a very uh, prolific, very – He's a colorful character. Uh, very colorful, <laughs> very uh, uh, animated uh, figure. Became John Gotti's uh, attorney, and you know, just as as much coverage and media hype as Gotti got in the mob world was as much hype and and uh, sensationalistic coverage as as Cutler got in the uh, criminal defense world. So here in Detroit. We have, uh, or we had, uh, our own um, very ferocious uh, mafia figure tandem of uh, Billy and Tony Giacalone, the Giacalone brothers. Um, uh, the FBI believes they were the people that uh, killed Jimmy Hoffa. And uh, they took a, uh, a racketeering indictment that came down in 1996, and Tony Giacalone retained Bruce Cutler as his attorney. Bruce Cutler came to Detroit and did uh, a couple uh, motion hearings. And then Tony Giacalone ended up dying before trial. But uh, Cutler was his de- uh, defense attorney of record in the famous Operation Game Tax case. And then talking about lawyers that uh, overstepped their boundaries, Billy Giacalone's attorney, uh, D-Day Loren, uh, again, a brilliant, brilliant criminal defense attorney. D-Day. D-Day, name <laughs> name because he was born on D-Day. Right. Uh, again, someone that uh, kind of like Cutler in Detroit was very animated and colorful. In fact, I believe he had a uh, has a, a a minor in theater from Harvard, in addition to his uh, law degree from Harvard, and just you know a brilliant uh, litigator, brilliant uh, uh, in, in writing briefs and writing appeals, but. Uh, D-Day, uh, you know, got caught, you know, crossing that line and got caught uh, helping the Jackalones uh, hide money. And he got disbarred for, uh, I think, three or four years, had to go to prison. Um, I grew up with his uh, son, and I remember when he went to prison, and I remember it, it, it took a big toll on, on his family. But to D-Day's credit, uh, came out of prison and, and uh, got his uh, got his ticket back. And now is uh, back uh, at the top of the profession. But uh, just trying to localize or regionalize some of uh, our conversation uh, and then tie it into to Gotti and, and Barry Slotnick and Bruce Cutler. Yeah, I mean, it's a good uh, example. I, I digress of, for, of, for, uh, for three, four minutes. Of, of guys who did not heed the advice of, yeah. of Stuart's father of like, don't, yeah. <laughs> don't cross that line. And my grandpa, too. I mean, again, to make this a little more about me, but, you know, my grandpa— uh, if you've listened to our, our podcast, I've talked a lot about him. You know, he was someone that uh, loved to surround himself by uh, organized crime figures, but <laughs> never actually uh, stepped over that line. 
Um, and he, he would tell me even at the, uh, when I was younger, like, yeah, those, these guys that I hang out with, your, your, your uncle Bernie and your uncle Al and your uncle, uh, Freddie. And, you know, these were all these Jewish, uh, bookies, loan sharks that, that ran around with the Jackalonies that my grandpa ran around with. But, uh, my grandpa would always tell me, you know, you can't, you never get half pregnant with these guys. Like it's cool to go grab a drink with them and go have dinner, but they ever ask you to, uh, do business with them, you know, run for the hills. That's good advice. Yeah. So, <laughs> That's uh, good advice. That so, is good advice. What was your father's impression of, of, um, of John Gotti? He was not such a fan of his. I'll leave it at that. I'll leave it at that. Okay. You're gonna have to read the book. No, no, that's fair. Book. That's fair, right? We don't want to. Yeah, we don't want to give it all away. But, no, but that's I, th- fair. I think there's yep. another element of this that I, I want to just flesh out for two minutes that uh, Stuart was alluding to a couple minutes ago is, you know, uh, whether you're a, a defense attorney representing these guys, or whether you're a reporter or an author writing about them or writing for them, um, you learn very quickly that just like everybody, everybody is a human being. Um, nobody is a, a one dimensional, uh, you know, a couple lines in a newspaper or a headline that doesn't represent who a person is. You know, people are, are fully formed multidimensional human beings, whether that means, whether you're a killer or you're a kindergarten teacher. Um, and you know, these guys can be, you know, they could be, at the at on the surface, they can be very likable and very engaging and very you know it's not and not to say that it's wrong to be friends with a bad person, but you know there are like we're talking about lines that you cross and and uh, or you shouldn't cross. But you know I've always in my reporting from early on when I started reporting on on these people and. Really, at first, they were just names in a book or names on a in a newspaper headline or a face that you saw on a a, a television screen getting you know uh, doing the perp walk. But you know, you, and it's just so easy to to think that that that, that it's that uh, the, the, there's that it's that thin that the that, that the. Uh, that the uh, that, that that there's no depth to these people. That there's no uh, multidimensionality. And and I just I, I've learned to always be cognizant of that because this might you know you might be writing about someone that is you know has been convicted of killing twenty people, but you know what that person still has a, a daughter, still has a mother, still has a wife, and not to say that you have to you know. Uh, you know, uh, you don't have to uh, compromise yourself, but at the same time, just be aware. I mean, I, I can remember writing a headline about this really, really bad gangland figure from Providence, Rhode Island. Uh, they called him the Saint Anthony Saint uh, Anthony Saint Laurent, and uh, you know, he, he was a really bad guy. And I wrote a, a headline on a story about his death that was kind of snarky and I had his uh, daughter uh, reach out to me and called me and was like, yeah, I know to, to you and everyone else, my dad was a, a monster, but he, he was still my dad, you know, and I, I, and he still read me bedtime stories and took me to Disneyland. Look, I, I, I want to say that when a lawyer likes a client, uh, they're not adopting uh, um, or affirming that what 
what they've done is okay. And it's a very interesting relationship, a lawyer-client relationship. As a lawyer, I like clients that are respectful of me as I'm respectful of them. I like clients that ask for your advice. That's our job. We're counselors. So, so I like clients that think about what you say and propose, how about this? How about that? Which is very different when clients come in and say, okay, I want you to do this. I want you to do that. Those kind of relationships don't work out for me because most of the clients that want to dictate their own legal strategy are heading down the road to a bad place because their law school was not as good as the lawyer's law school, which is no law school at all. And some clients are really smart, but the clients that listen to you and are just decent on your one-on-one transaction, it makes it, it, it makes it, a little bit like a team because you're working on a case together and the best way a lawyer can be successful in a case is if they have a client that listens, that's smart and that follows directions. If, if you tell your client, I need you to get me this information and they don't get it to, to you, then you don't like the client as much because they're making your job harder, even though you're working for them. It's an interesting dynamic. I wanted to ask um, also about uh, another client. We don't really talk about the Russian mafia too much on this program. I don't think we ever have. And I admit it's not my area of expertise. Um, although I did have some training on that at the National Gang Crime Research Center in Chicago. But um, I'm not even sure if I'm pronouncing his name correctly. But Vyacheslav uh, Karolovich, I don't, I don't know if I'm mispronouncing that. But I think that was one of your dad's big underworld clients too. Is that going to be in the book at all? Any stories about their relationship? You know, that's not really the, the Ivankov case is not really in the book. Okay. Ivankov, um, right. That's there's the so many, yeah, there's so many stories that didn't make it. I, I mean, Patterson picked so many great stories to go in there. So I don't know, maybe he wants to do a sequel. <laughs> yeah, that's a, good, that's a good idea. Do you remember your, your father working on that case at all? I mean, what, any impressions that you have from that you know episode? I, I, remember being in the courtroom watching my father try the case wow. on a, a few days. And, um, you know, back then, if my timeline is correct, I was a young prosecutor and the courtroom where he was trying that case was pretty close to the courtroom where I was trying my cases. So I stopped by a few times. Um, but it's it wasn't unusual for me to see my father in action. There were times when I was with coloring book and crayons in hand as a young kid in court <laughs> with my father for the argument of a motion. And I remember this one time he was in the Eastern District and the judge was screaming at him, was really ripping into him. And I was, I, I was very young, but I went to go to work with dad day. And, um, that took me inside the Eastern district into the courtroom. And I said, dad, why is that man yelling at you? I was so young. And he said, Oh, he's the judge. He's just doing his job. And I remember saying he could be a little nicer. 
That's funny. <laughs> and then when I was and then and then when I was in high school, I took a class called criminal justice. And we brought my entire class to see the John Gotti trial one day. Wow. <laughs> and my dad and my dad my dad made John Gotti come over and say hello to my class. Oh boy. Which he didn't want to do. Which which by the way, you know, you, you look at John Gotti. That would look good in front of a jury. <laughs> well, it wasn't in front of the jury because when the jury was there, court business was taking place. But it was on a break. And, you know, John Gotti, he's known as the Dapper Don, and he's very flamboyant, and he's very brash. But in person, you know, this goes back into the attorney-client relationship. In person, my impression, so I was a high schooler, but my impression was that he was very shy, and he didn't want to go over. And I I saw my dad, come on, John, come over. And he's like, and I saw he didn't want to do it. And he was very reluctant. And he came over and he said, hello, but he was shy. He was very soft-spoken and very shy about it. It was really an interesting thing. That is, that is fascinating to me because, you know, that's so outside of John Gotti's comfort zone. And he probably wasn't used to very often having to be outside of his comfort zone. No, he would like, you know I mean? he would like it when like the couple at, Oh yeah, that's uh, right. Elaine's. Yeah, ask for his autograph. Come up and do him and ask. But when <laughs> right. it comes to like sixteen-year-old kids, yeah, he probably was a little bit, uh, yeah, you know, not not in. That's not in his wheelhouse. Yeah, right. So that's really interesting that he and it sort of makes sense to me that he would be timid, ironically, right? Yeah. Uh, about that. That's a great. That's a great story. I, I, you know, shifting from one icon to another, but in a in a different uh, space. How, how did your father get to meet with John F. Kennedy in the days before? Kenny was assassinated, and, and from just doing the the math, your dad would have been like twenty three or twenty four, getting the audience with uh, Kennedy. He was in his twenties. Yeah. So my father's, you know, I said from a very young age, he was a lawyer about town, and he had a lot of a, a lot of clients in in a lot of areas, and he represented the Dominican Republic. And when there was a coup in the Dominican Republic, my father had represented the ousted government and he was able to get a meeting with the president of the United States when he was in New York in the Carlisle hotel. So my father went to the Carlisle hotel and went to the suite where he was. And he had a brief meeting with Kennedy in which Kennedy assured him that as long as he was president, that his clients, the ousted government of the Dominican Republic would be the government that was recognized by the United States. And then Kennedy was assassinated a week later. And then the secretary of state sent him a telegram and said, the United States no longer recognizes your client as the legitimate government of the Dominican Republic. Wow. I don't know. I don't know if, if uh, your father had, you know, anything knowledge of this, but what, wasn't there some mafia stuff with that too? Didn't they mob want casinos? I know they wanted it casinos in Haiti. I know the Joe Bonanno wanted casinos in Haiti. They thought once Cuba, once Cuba fell to Castro, let's just hop island and set up the hotels and casinos. Lansky too. And land, right. And I think Dominican Republic was another location that they wanted, you know, access uh, to. Right. And I'm assuming I'm ignorant about the, the history of the Dominican Republic, I admit, but it wouldn't surprise me if some of those politicians were cozy with some of those underworld things, like Batista was. I mean, mm -hmm. I'm just speculating, but I, I don't know. Stu, 
I want to finish off with something that this might kind of be out of left field for you. And it might be out of left field for my uh, co-host because we didn't talk about this before. But if you're willing to, I, I wouldn't mind getting maybe five minutes of insight on uh, a case that we have going on right now in the Detroit area that is incredibly uh, unique. And it uh, ties into a, uh, a school shooting from two weeks ago. I don't know if you've been following it, but it's got mm-hmm. a lot of national uh, coverage and uh, not the fact that there was a school shooting because unfortunately over the last 20 years, that's become way too normalized. Uh, we had a 15 year old kid uh, at a suburban high school here in Detroit, bring a gun to school and uh, go on a, a two, three minute rampage. But the the very unique part of this is that uh, his parents have been charged criminally and are facing uh, second-degree murder charges. And it looks like in the coming days or weeks that the prosecutor will file some form of criminal charges against members of or employees of the school, Uh, possibly the superintendent, possibly the principal possibly uh, some of the counselors that uh, allowed uh, Ethan Crumbly, the shooter, to return to class after he had been uh, called out uh, in two separate incidents in the 24 hours leading up to the shooting, one when he got caught uh, looking up uh, ammunition, uh, purchasing ammunition on the Internet, and then uh, when the uh, teachers a couple hours after that uh, found him uh, drawing uh, pictures of, of what he was about to do but was still allowed to return to class, um, and then the shooting occurred. Do you have any uh, you know, perspective to, to shed on the fact that you, you're having parents being charged? This has never happened before, and then the possibility that uh, uh, people at the school could be charged. Well, you know, obviously it's terrible, terrible tragedy, a horrific set of circumstances. But I don't know the facts that would substantiate the parents being charged. And so I can't really speak to that, but with regards to the school, it sometimes prosecutors bring charges that are overreaching. I don't know if this is the case. Well, just so you know, that's the, that's part of the critique on uh, the prosecutor in Oakland County, uh, uh, McDonald, that she's using this as a, you know, a, a stepping stone or a platform to leverage forward her political aspirations. Um, and that, you know, she's looking for a bunch of heads on her wall. Uh, so th- that those, those uh, thoughts have been made public over the last week or so of, of believing that this might be an overcharge or that she's on some type of witch hunt. I don't necessarily subscribe to that, but those are beliefs that are out in the, in the ether here in Metro Detroit. You know, I don't think it would be fair me to, to comment on it because I'm really not very well versed in it. I know about the case. I don't know all the evidence. I don't know what the prosecutor has, you know, criminal defense attorneys always see prosecutors overreaching and they see prosecutors trying to make cases because they're publicity cases. Um, You know, this is a really terrible case. And I, and I, and I don't want to, uh, levy any criticism because I I really don't know the facts. I get it. And I the facts will re- the, and the facts will reveal what they are. 
and a judge will hear it. There will be motions to dismiss. If they're not legally sufficient claims, then they may be they may be dismissed. Unfortunately, for for mom and dad, and we can we can be wrapping it up right here. But I, I appreciate you even just having a, a limited conversation with with us about it. I, I apologize for blindsiding you with it. I'm just was kind of interested on an outside uh, perspective from someone that understands the the criminal justice system from a, a criminal defense point of view. Uh, you know, the one thing I will will, will just add into this conversation before we leave it is that the mom and dad really hurt their own cause by becoming fugitives after the charges were filed. Uh, They were on the run for about a day, um, looking like they were about to flee across the border uh, to Canada. And uh, that has now made it so they're not going to get bonded out. Uh, They would have been, you know, pretty easily bonded out if they hadn't gone on the run. But now they're going to have to fight the case uh, from behind bars, and uh, it's just going to make it more difficult for them. But uh, I suspect that they could, you know, if they can't get the case uh, dismissed or whatever, that they could plead this thing down. And I'm not, you know, still you're going to probably have to go do three, four, three, four, five years, but uh, maybe not the 15 that the uh, prosecutor's looking at to slap them with. But uh, again, I, I appreciate just any any insight on that. But uh, let's just finish up uh, and and thank Stuart Slotnick for for coming on the original Gangsters podcast. Go out and buy James Patterson's new book, uh, The Defense Lawyer. I'm sure it's going to be packed with uh, great stories, great anecdotes, so much knowledge, so much history. Uh, go grab it for for your Christmas. Uh, for a Christmas gift for one of your loved ones, put it under the tree. Comes out December twentieth. Anywhere where books are sold, uh, Stuart Slock, Nick, you have been uh, all that we we had hoped for and more. Uh, we we give uh, you know such you know respect and uh, send our uh, our our, uh, uh, our best wishes to your father and to uh, Mr. Patterson, and hope hope your book. Uh, sells off the charts i know it's being uh put out by little brown which is a really good uh book company and uh for someone that's authored six books i know how uh how laborious and arduous the process can be but once it comes out and you actually see it and you can feel it and you can touch it and see it on a shelf it's a real sense of uh of satisfaction so Stuart, any closing thoughts no i appreciate it. it was great talking to you guys and take it easy thanks so much guys thanks a lot Stuart. Thank you. Uh, I just want to remind our listeners also, uh, please subscribe to us. You can uh, follow us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, trying to put some content on YouTube. And we appreciate everyone's support. So for Jimmy Buccellato, this is Scott Bernstein, Original Gangsters Podcast, out. Out.